Well, we're continuing our uh, march through the book of Daniel, be in chapter 4 today, and I'd like to introduce our thoughts from Daniel 4 by asking a few questions. The question is, well, what is the root of all of the problems in the world today? What is the root of all the problems in government, all the problems in education, all the problems in the economy, in our personal relationships, in our family lives, in our private lives? What, what is the, the basic root problem? Well, many of you have a theological mindset and a biblical worldview, and you, you immediately know the answer. The answer is sin. Sin is the root problem of all of our personal issues and all of society's ills. The Bible tells us that we are all living under the curse of sin. Romans 5.12 says, For by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed on all men because all have sinned. Everything dies, including us, because of the curse of sin. King David writes in Psalm 51 that he was a sinner from the time that he was conceived in his mother's womb. So we are sinners because we sin, and we sin because we're sinners. The Apostle John tells us that sin is the transgression of the law in 1 John 3.4. Then in Romans 3.20, Paul instructs us that by the law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 7, he says, He would not have known sin except through the law. So we have to know God's law in order to identify sin properly. God says, do this, and we don't. God says, don't do this, and we do. So, so we, we find ourselves as sinners in, in direct opposition to what God says because of what we commit and what we omit. And the curse of sin not only involves human beings, but it extends to the entire created world. We see that very clearly in Genesis 3. And, and the Apostle Paul also writes in Romans chapter 8, little passage here, verses 19 to 22 in Romans 8, where Paul says, Creation, all of creation, is under the bondage of corruption, or the bondage of decay, meaning that it is wearing out and winding down, and eventually everything rusts out, wears out, breaks down, and falls apart, including us. Paul says that, that creation is groaning with labor pains waiting for redemption. So we are sin-cursed people living in a sin-cursed world, which is what makes the message of Jesus Christ so wonderful. The, the, the forgiveness of sin, the confidence of eternity with the Lord, gives us an eternal hope. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, and we recognize our sinfulness, and we ask for forgiveness, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And as we learn to walk in obedience to Christ, we are being saved systematically and, and continuously from the dominating power of sin. And when we who have trusted Christ for forgiveness, when we leave this life, we'll be saved eventually from the very presence of sin. Some theologians like to call it salvation in three tenses. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the presence of sin. Eventually we'll be. And if you like the theological terms being saved from the penalty of sin, that's our salvation. 
being saved from the dominating power of sin, that's our sanctification. And being saved eventually from the very presence of sin, that's our glorification in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the message of Jesus Christ is such an incredible, wonderful, blessed message to people who come to recognize that we are sin-cursed people living in a sin-cursed world. So what is the root of all the problems in the world today? What's the root of all the problems in government, in education, in the economy, in our personal relationship, in our family lives, in our private lives? What's the basic root problem? It's sin. It's our sin and everybody else's sin. We're a bunch of sinners living in a sin-cursed world. And, and until we address that issue, our problems will never be resolved long-term. Things may get better for a few days or a few weeks, but the root will keep springing back up and it will continue to do so until we address the sin in our own hearts. You know, the government wants to fix problems by giving more money to sinners. Educators want to fix problems by trying to make young sinners feel better about themselves. Economists try to fix problems by creating policies that ignore the fact that sinners are selfish. In our personal relationships, we try to fix our problems by blaming everybody but the person in the mirror. Problems in every area of life, on every level of relationship, what will never be solved until we address the sin issue, the sin in our own hearts. And then I want to go just a little deeper even. What is the root of our sinful actions? Our sinful thoughts, our sinful attitudes, our sinful perspectives. Why do we do what we do? Why do we think what we think? Why do we feel what we feel? Why do we say what we say? Why do we have the attitudes that we have? You see, if the root of all of our problems is sin, and it is, then what is the root of our sin? It's pride. Andrew Murray, pastor and writer from a few generations ago, once wrote, Pride is the root of every sin and evil. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India in the 1800s, wrote many thought-provoking devotionals, we might call them today in our modern world, blogs. She wouldn't have known what we were talking about if we used that term with her living 150 years ago. But she once wrote, those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. Puritan writer Thomas Watson from the 1600s, he wrote, a proud man is a self-worshipper. Richard Baxter from the same era in the 1600s wrote, pride is so undiscerned by most of us that we cherish it in our own hearts while we are speaking against it at the same time against somebody else. A name from our day, familiar to many of us, Chuck Swindoll once wrote, The world's smallest package is a man wrapped up in himself. Someone also said once, Pride is the only disease that makes everybody sick except the person who has it. You have to think about that one for a minute. Of course, the Bible is filled with all sorts of warnings about pride and condemnations of pride. And I'm sure you're familiar with some of those. King Solomon wrote, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's Proverbs 16.5. 
Later in that chapter, Proverbs 16, 18, he said, famous verse, many people quote, at least the verse, maybe don't know the reference, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Chapter 26 and verse 12 of Proverbs, Solomon said, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope of a fool than for him. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. James writes in James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, the root of all of our problems is sin. And the root of our sin, the very foundation of our sinful nature, is pride. Now you may be thinking right now, boy, pastor's really on a, a rant today. Actually, I'm not on a rant. I'm just simply introducing Daniel chapter 4. And I'm teaching some very practical theology along the way. Because we're going to see a classic example of pride in the way God deals with it here in, here in chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. Daniel 4 is a unique chapter in the Bible. It was, it's unique because it was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. God the Holy Spirit directed Daniel to include it in his book of writings, but the whole chapter, chapter 4 of Daniel, was actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and he wrote it as a public testimony to his entire empire regarding the glory of God and God's ability to humble the proud. This is written, the whole chapter is written in, in the form of an official proclamation to the entire Babylonian empire. And I'm quite certain that after Nebuchadnezzar wrote it, government officials took copies of it, traveled throughout the empire, gathered crowds of people together in every city, and read this proclamation aloud to them. So just that feature alone makes this a very unique and interesting chapter. There is no other Gentile king, by Gentile I mean a non-Jew, no other Gentile king mentioned more times in the Old Testament than Nebuchadnezzar. His name appears 91 times in the Old Testament, mostly in the book of Jeremiah and Daniel, but he's also mentioned several times in Ezekiel and in several of the historical books, 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. His name appears there as well. 91 times he's mentioned in the Old Testament. And as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, several times God calls him Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Even though he was, in many ways, a ruthless tyrant, he was also a brilliant organizer and administrator. And during his reign, he built Babylon into one of the most incredible cities in the ancient world. And Daniel chapter 4 is the last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar. So let's begin to read. We're going to work our way through the chapter, and then I have several, several personal applications I want to make as we get down to the very end. Daniel 4, let's begin to read there. Nebuchadnezzar the king, this is his salutation, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders <clears throat> that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. So I read that first, that opening line, I said, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
Is this the same guy who in chapter 2 and 3 wants to hack people in pieces and burn down their houses if they don't do what he wants them to do? Yeah, it's the same guy. Is this the same guy who brazenly tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who is the God who will save you from my hand? <laughs> yeah, it's the same guy. Something has obviously happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you know, to my entire kingdom, I thought it would be good to declare to you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. And you got to scratch your head and say, wow, what in the world happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Something certainly happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And as I thought about that, I said, wow, be encouraged. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's power. God did something amazing in the heart of a ruthless king. And humanly speaking, Daniel's testimony was a big part of it. So don't ever look at somebody and say, Well, you know, you know how bad that person is? I, I, they'll never come to Christ. Oh, I got, that guy, he'll never set foot in the church. Oh, no, he's, he's beyond reachable. Oh, no, no, no. If God could reach Nebuchadnezzar, God can reach anybody. You read what he was like in secular history, and you see these little clips of him in, in, uh, in, in Daniel chapter 2 and 3, and you, and you look at the history of what he did to Jerusalem when he, when, when he destroyed it, and then you see him write this, I think it would be good if I told you about the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. You're like, what? Yeah. God did something amazing in the heart of a ruthless king. And humanly speaking, Daniel's testimony was a huge part of it. And if God is going to reach into the lives of some of the people you love that you think are beyond hope, he's going to use your testimony as a big part of it as well. Let's read his dream. Daniel 4, verse, in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, meaning things are peaceful, prosperity is here, things are great, I have no wars going on, I've defeated everybody, I control this whole piece of the world, I'm at rest in my house, I'm flourishing in my palace, I've built this fabulous city. You may have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar engineered that. And he says, I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all of the wise men of Babylon before me that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in. You remember them from chapter 2. And I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the, of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, that no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Notice there he calls Daniel by his Hebrew name as well as by his Babylonian name, and he refers to Daniel having the spirit of the Holy God. Some think that this should be translated a spirit of the Holy Gods, being that Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheistic animist. 
But students of Aramaic, which is the language Nebuchadnezzar's writing in, say this is actually the correct rendering, and a holiness and purity was not claimed as a quality of false gods. And so he looks at Daniel. He's had experience with Daniel for many years now already. And now he says, Daniel has the spirit of the holy God in him. I know he can tell me this. And these were his visions, verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens. It could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, a reference to to an angelic being, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him, that gives you an idea of who the tree is, it's a person, let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth, let his heart be changed from that of a man, let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times, and based on a passage in chapter 7, and also a parallel passage in the book of Revelation, this word times, a definite period of time, we believe refers to a year. Let seven years pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. He shocked, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. And I thought just one passing sideline statement there regarding Daniel. If you had been taken away as a teenager, and your city that you lived in had been leveled, and thousands of people had been killed, and you had been marched off to a foreign land, and made basically a slave worker in an empire, you wind up working for the king, and then you get this message from God that tells of his doom, what would you be tempted to do? A lot of people become to say, Praise God, he's going to get what's coming to him. Finally, after all these years, he's going to get what's coming to him. Go, God, go. Yes. That'd be the temptation of our, of our carnal nature, would it not? But when Daniel realizes what God is about to do to Nebuchadnezzar, he's just shocked, like, oh, oh, my Lord, the king, may, may this dream concern somebody else. May its interpretation be for your enemies. He's still compassionate and kind-hearted. And and he's going to plead in a minute for Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. But just, again, just an incredible window on, on why God, later on in the book of Daniel, calls Daniel, beloved Daniel. 
I send this message to you, my beloved Daniel. Daniel had a heart like God. Daniel had a heart of compassion and forgiveness. Even with a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, oh, my Lord, the king, may the dream concern those who hate you. And here's the interpretation. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and his fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, an angelic being, as I say, coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the, in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times or seven years pass by. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. They will make you eat grass like oxen, they shall wet you with the dew of heaven till seven times or seven years pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you or returned to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. There's his challenge. Oh, king, please repent. Repent before God brings this on you. God's going God's to turn you out to the field. You're going to lose your mind. He's going to put you out and you're going to want to eat grass like a cow. Say, really? Yeah. You know, psychologists identify Nebuchadnezzar's condition as something they call zoanthropy, thinking you're an animal. Specifically here, boanthropy, thinking that you are a bovine, an ox or a cow. It's a rare, but it actually, even in the last couple hundred years, it is a documented mental condition. And there, interestingly, there's historical archaeological evidence that there was a period of time in Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and was not functioning normally. Now, we don't need evidence from archaeology because we believe the Bible. The, but this passage is true whether they found archaeological evidence for it or not. But it is interesting that there is actually historical evidence for a period of time, several years, when Nebuchadnezzar was not making any pronouncements and somebody else was running the kingdom. It's also very interesting that no one tried to take over the kingdom during that time. Can you imagine in, in, in the, the world today if, if a national leader, something happened to them and they totally lost their mind, there would be somebody coming to take the reins like right now. But Nebuchadnezzar for seven years thinks he's a cow. For seven years. And nobody touches the kingdom. There's been some Bible students, I'm inclined to agree with them, who think that, that nobody touched the kingdom because Daniel was running the show. Chapter 2 of, of the book of, of uh, Daniel, you see, Daniel was, was given the position of governor of the province of Babylon. And he sat in the gate of the king. He was one of the most powerful men in Babylon under the rulership of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And I just kind of, he doesn't say anything about it here. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say anything about it here. But I just can't help but wonder if Daniel just sort of kept things rolling along, just waiting, waiting, waiting for the seven years for God to give Nebuchadnezzar his mind back again. And of course it all happened there in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of the grace of God again. Waited 12 more months for him to repent. He gives the judgment. He gives the decree. This is what I'm going to do to you because of your pride and your arrogance. And then he waits 12 more months after Daniel challenges him to repent. But at the end of 12 months, he's walking around the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke. And here's this. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They will make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times or seven years will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. What a condition for seven years. It goes on. Finally, at the end of the seven years, God gives him his mind back. And I want to read Nebuchadnezzar's closing thoughts and then I want to share with you these four or five truths. That, uh, that, that, that I believe God is teaching us and telling us from this story. At the end of the time, at the end of the seven years, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the heaven, the, 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 the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. You better believe it. Several truths to remember based on all of this. And I think, just another, just a hunch, he doesn't say this, but Nebuchadnezzar, I think, was probably writing this proclamation, maybe to explain to the empire where he's been for the last seven years. Why nobody heard anything of Nebuchadnezzar for the last seven years? Which, which is why he says, I thought it good to declare to you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. I thought maybe it would be a good thing to explain to you in all of my empire why you haven't heard anything from me in seven years. This is what happened, and this is why. So now I praise, and I love that last phrase, I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. All His works are truth, His ways justice. You walk in pride, He can put the kibosh on you anytime He feels like it. 
Let me give you four or five truths to remember here. Number one is this. God rules this universe. Now we know that, we say it, we preach, I've talked about it, but I mean, let, let's, let's get a grip on that. God rules this universe. And He's not just overseeing the natural world, but He is performing His purposes in human government. Look at five verses in this chapter, the, the last phrase of verse 17. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will and sets over it the lowest of men. Then verse 25, down at the end of the chapter, I'm sorry, at the end of the verse. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. Verse 26, the end of the verse. After you come to know that heaven rules. Verse 32. Down the end of the verse. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And then verse 34, He says, He does His will according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain His hand or say to God, What have you done? Hey, God rules this universe. And which brings us to our second thought, that God is in control of who our rulers are. Now you and I have every right in America to vote and write letters and peacefully demonstrate if we choose to do that. But in the end, we have leaders that we have. We have the leaders that we have because God wants them to be in control at this time to fulfill His purposes. That's true at the local level, that's true at the state level, that's true at the federal level, that's true everywhere on this planet. The people who are in control of the government are there because God has, has, has seen to it that they are there, so they are fulfilling His purposes. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And God says, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and I give it to whoever I want to give it to. God providentially directs the human affairs of this nation and every nation for His purposes. So pray, absolutely pray, and absolutely vote. We have the right to do that. I've encouraged you to vote based on the standards of God's Word. Write letters. I write letters to our senators and congressmen. I just wrote an email to some of them this week and asked them to support one thing and, 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 and to do something else. You know, I, it's not the first time I've done that. Pray and vote and write letters. If you want to peacefully demonstrate, okay. But then you've got to trust God and rest in Him because God rules in the kingdom of men. Third thought, God is sovereign. He does according to His will in the army of heaven. That's what sovereign means. God has the right to do what He wants. God is sovereign, but He's also good and holy and wise and just and truthful. You see, He is ruling for His glory and the ultimate good of His people. He has reasons and purposes for what He is doing. And I thought it was interesting that Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and thought he was a cow for seven years. But he says, God's works are truth and His ways are justice. Because now he's in submission to God. And, and he realizes that it was his pride that was the root of his problems. When we were on our road trip back from, uh, uh, from seeing daughter in Denver a few weeks ago, had our other, our other older grandkids with us, and we were coming through the middle of nowhere in Wyoming someplace up I-25, and we were talking about 
the sovereignty of God and God being in control and various things. And, and the little grandson from the back seat says, Boy, it must be nice to be sovereign and do whatever you want, whenever you want. <laughs> uh, and I said to him, you know, God is sovereign, but you know what? He's also good and just and righteous and holy and compassionate. He has no sin, so he has no selfishness. And so when God does whatever he wants, whenever, whenever he wants, it's not because he's motivated by selfishness. His sovereignty works together perfectly with all of his other attributes. He does what he wants, not because of selfishness, but because he has purposes for his creation. And then our fourth thought. The root of our problems is sin, as we've said and the root of our sin is pride. As Nebuchadnezzar said, those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar suffered from the disease of me. And it took seven years of humiliation for him to wake up. You look at your life and you look at problems in your life. The root problem, or the root of all those problems is sin. Ours or somebody else's. And, and, and the root of our sin is, is pride. We want our way. We want it our way. We want everything to be our way. We want it when we want it, how we want it now. It's pride. We're so concerned about what everybody thinks of this or that and the other. And we're, we're mad at this and mad at that. Look at yourself in the mirror. Say, God, am I, is this pride? I give you a 99% chance it is. Some form of it. The root of our problems is sin, and the root of our sin is pride. Then look, then the number, then the fifth thing. What, what is wrong with our world? We have rejected God. That's what's wrong with our world. It's the same thing that's always been wrong with our world. What's, what's wrong with me and my problems? What's wrong with you and your problems? It's when we reject God. What is the solution? You know, for the last 10 years, people have talked about hope and change, hope and change, hope and change. Well, I'll tell you, there's only one hope, and that's Jesus Christ. And there's only one change, and that's salvation through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, nothing changes, and there's no hope. Without Jesus Christ and salvation through Him, nothing will change, and there's no hope. Have you not known... Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I so know most of you recognize the passage there, Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. Have you not known, God says, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. God help us to humble ourselves in the eyes of God and stand strong for Him in these last days. Let's pray. Lord, we know academically, 
theologically, we know you're sovereign. We know you're in control. But we don't always live that way. We make choices and we pursue things that, that indicate that way down deep in our soul, we still want to be in control. And we don't recognize your sovereignty. And we're all wrapped up in our secret pride. We condemn it in everyone else while we still have it ourselves. Lord, I pray you'd forgive us. Help us, Lord, to, to humble ourselves, as the book of James says. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Lord, it took some very, very drastic steps in the life of Nebuchadnezzar for him to recognize his pride and to admit who is really in charge of everything. Lord, I pray that we will bend the knee before you and that we will submit to your will and your ways. And we will do what you ask us to do and be what you want us to be. May we, Lord, humble ourselves and stand strong for you as these days become more challenging in the months and years ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.